All right, I hope you all have a handout. Uh, Jared was passing those out. He's still just kind of keep an eye on Jared, see who comes in. Um, good morning. Uh, welcome to the sixth and final uh, installment of church history for this go-round. Um, just in uh, kind of my goal for this whole period is to look at the church in the 18th century, and I think we've done a pretty adequate job of that. Uh, today we're going to focus on the uh, beginnings of the modern missionary movement, because uh, really that begins in the late 1700s, mainly the 1790s, with the life of William Carey and the establishment of a lot of uh, missionary societies within the churches in Europe and America. And um, it really continues on into the 19th century, so we'll talk about some more missionaries the next time we get together when we talk about the 19th century. Uh, but the roots of the modern missionary movement are found in the events of the 18th century, primarily the Great Awakening, the colonial expansion of the British Empire, and the life and uh, endurance of William Carey. So, uh, without further ado, let's go to the scriptures and let's read uh, the Great Commission, which is the uh, empowering text for most missionaries. So if you could turn with me to Matthew 28, start reading in verse 16. I'll give you a second to turn there. <clears throat> what? Matthew 28, 16, Great Commission. <clears throat> Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> um, but just in review, as you guys are turning there, the last few weeks, and you can find these messages, which is scary, on iTunes. <laughs> don't Google, don't, don't iTunes me, put in Calvary Bible Church, and you can catch these messages if you'd like. Uh, we, but just in review, we've primarily talked about the Great Awakening, and in America, primarily, it's two uh, greatest figures in Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. We talked about the Moravians. We talked about the Great Awakening in England uh, with John and Charles Wesley. And then last week, we kind of went away from the Awakening and talked about the American Christian influence in the Revolution, uh, in the American Revolution. So that brings us up to where we are now. So I think you're all there now in the Scriptures. Uh, Matthew 28, 16. Let's read this, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Dear Father, Lord, we come before you, Lord, uh, humble um, because of the great work you've done on our behalf through Jesus. Lord, we also worship you, Lord, because you are with us always. Lord, that's what your word says, and that's a promise that we can claim. Lord, I pray that as we consider uh, the modern missionary movement, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred to missions as well, Lord, as we see the faith of great men and women, Lord, who honor you and glorify you with their lives and are so captivated by your um, glory that they sacrificed much, Lord, so that they could um, lead others to you. Lord, may we uh, be those type of people too. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this day, for the opportunity that we have to learn more about you and your involvement in the history of your church. Lord, I pray that it would be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I really need this coffee. It's a late night. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let's talk about, so obviously the mission movement of the church began at the, uh, when the apostles in the book of Acts began spreading the church through all of Israel, or through Judah, um, through Israel, through Samaria, and then all to the ends of the known earth. But, <clears throat> but for a period of many years, the church was centralized only in um, Europe, for the most part, up until the Reformation. It was pretty much a European church. Um, and even in the Reformation, the missions movement doesn't start for another couple hundred years after the Reformation. But there are several groups that start doing missions before this modern missionary movement 
in the, in the um, middle of the 1500s and 1600s. So let's look at those. So these are the forerunners to the modern missionary movement. The first ones were actually not Protestants. This is post-Reformation. It was actually the first worldwide missions efforts were done by the Roman Catholics. And those were done in the 1500s in the Spanish settlements of New Spain and New France primarily. And these, these uh, missionaries came along with the colonials of the large Spanish empire. Um, and, and these were Catholic um, missionaries that were sponsored by the state. So there was large countries like Spain, Portugal, and France who were all Catholic that had a major impact as they were colonizing to bring the Catholic faith to the locals and to the natives of those areas. The priests, primarily from the Dominican and the Jesuit orders, were most influential in the missions effort. And most likely the Jesuits would have been the most impactful. You see, there's kind of a reason why the Roman Catholic Church was trying to broaden its scope throughout the rest of the world. It had been pretty marginalized in many areas of Europe and its influence had waned because of the uh, Protestant Reformation. So they were, as they were going and colonizing these new lands, it was their hope to bring in new followers and new believers to the Roman Catholic faith. Um, the most successful efforts really were probably by uh, people to the Native Americans in, in, in New France. Um, before that, just one note that I have here for you is that a man by the name of Francis Xavier, he was a Jesuit priest, was a missionary all the way to India in Japan in the 16th century. And in, in New France, which is pretty much Canada, and you start, you go from Canada kind of down to the Great Lakes region in the United States, um, there was a lot of missionary success. These missionaries, or these priests, would go with the uh, explorers as they would uh, travel down the Mississippi or through the Great Lakes Valley. And there was a man, there was an explorer by the name of Louis Joliet who took Father Jacques Marquette with him on his journey to the Midwest of America. And Marquette saw it as his ambition to seek out the souls of the Indians of Illinois. And he said this, he wanted to seek toward the south, this is coming from Canada, to see new nations and people unknown to us in order to make them known, known by our great God, for whom now they have been ignorant. And he had many converts among the native people, Yet he died at age 38 because of the difficulties of the travel. So Jacques Marquette was one of the key early per, uh, Catholic missionaries. Another one was a man by the name of Jean de Brebeuf. I didn't have you write that in your notes because I didn't want to have to spell it. Uh, and he was uh, another uh, Jesuit priest to the Native Americans. What he did, though, was he understood the need for the church, the Catholic church, to adapt to the culture of the people they were evangelizing. So there was this thought that in order for somebody to be Christian, they had to act like the people of the culture who were doing the mission work. So you had to look like a, you had to, you had to live like a Spaniard or you had to live like an Englishman to be a Christian. That was the thought. But that's not the case with Brebeuf. He thought that he needed to adapt his missionary mindedness to the culture of the people. And he was successful at converting the Hurons because he prepared material for them in their own language and in the idiom or the grammar of their culture. Brebeuf was actually killed, though, by the Hurons' rival tribe, the Iroquois, in 1649. And he was very respected, even by the Iroquois, for his great courage. So after they tortured him, and he was courageous in his torture, the, this is a little disgusting, the Iroquois cut out his heart and ate it so they might receive some of his courage but he was highly respected. Sorry for the gruesome image on a Sunday morning. Um, but French Canada also produced the first woman missionary in the New World. Her name was Marie Guillart, and she wrote literature in the language of the Huron and Algonquian native converts. So that's, a, that's something that comes up as we talk about missions in the 19th century primarily, is that women had a primary role as mission missionaries uh, to these uh, new cultures. So really, the Roman Catholic Church was the first to pursue worldwide missions during the Age of Discovery. And as I said earlier, it was necessary for them to do that because 
they had to look globally for more converts. Since post-Reformation, they had lost so many parishioners, and in a lot of Europe, their influence had waned significantly. All right, so that's the Roman Catholics. Let's get to the Protestants. Um, there are many, um, I guess, forerunners to Protestant missions. Uh, the first, um, the reason th that there wasn't initially post-Reformation in the, in the 1500s or 1600s a great missions movement is the church, the, ref the, the churches of the Reformation were trying to understand who they were. They were trying to supplement and get an idea of what the doctrine of the church should be, establishing churches, training ministers, and also one of the primary things that the re in the Reformation was the translation of scriptures into the language of the people. So that, that was the focus of the church in the Reformation. So there was not this outward focus of missions-mindedness. Um, but as the Reformed faith uh, the, the, or the faiths of the Reformers developed and matured, there became more of an emphasis on missions worldwide. One thing you should know, though, is I'm saying worldwide missions. You know that, and that we talked about this a couple years ago probably now, but when John Calvin was ministering in Geneva, French ministers, French Protestants would come to Geneva to be trained, and they would leave Geneva and go back to Roman Catholic France where they would go and minister the gospel um, appropriately, and oftentimes they were killed and martyred because of that. So there's, there's kind of a local missions mindset in John Calvin, the need to, uh, to um, teach and train ministers in order to take the gospel to the places where the true gospel wasn't being preached. But there wasn't a worldwide uh, missions at that time. Um, but that's still pretty regionalized. The first known world missionaries that were Protestant were in the early 1600s. And they were French Huguenots. That's number three in your outline. In a small French colony in Brazil. Don't know much about them and they didn't last very long, they didn't have lasting success, Brazil ended up becoming more influenced by Spain or Portugal, I can't remember which. Uh, secondly, in the 1600s, or the, yeah, in the 1600s, the Netherlands um, began doing a lot of missions work. Um, so the, the Dutch Reformed Church coined the term church planting, actually, in the uh, Dutch colony of Indonesia. So looking back in world history, the, 17, the uh, 1600s are the golden, is the golden age for the Netherlands. So the, the Dutch people experienced their greatest success in exploration and world power in the 1600s. And they were inspired by a man I didn't put this in your notes at all because I don't want you to even think about trying to spell it. Gisbertus Votius, who wrote a theology of missions. And he was the leader in 17th century uh, Dutch culture of the precisionist movement, which is kind of the Dutch uh, counterpart to the Puritan movement of England. And um, he was influenced greatly by German pietism. And he was the first to really stress that the Great Commission was a command to all of the church. There was a thought by some of the reformers even um, that, and I don't think they fully developed this, that the command of the Great Commission was solely for the apostles, not for the church as a whole. But Votius uh, wrote in, in his theology was that the, that the Great Commission was for all of the church, and we all should be submitting to the authority of the Great Commission. So we have the Reformed Church being involved in missions. So when the Reformed Church is involved in missions, the Reformed Church is the state church of the Netherlands. So in both the Netherlands with the Reformed Church and the Roman Catholic Church um, in Spain and Portugal and France, the mission efforts kind of coincide with the colonial efforts. They're kinda, there's kind of a mix of those things. So they're sponsored by the state. They have their funding from the state, the church does, or from whatever means the church gets their money, but it's state-sponsored. They kind of intermixed. Um, the next group we'll talk about is the first English miss missions, um, and that was the, the Puritans and their involvement with the Native Americans in England. Um, so as the, as the first missionary effort for the English, 
Puritan outreach to Native Americans included several outstanding men. So these are the Puritans that went and established the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1628 in um, New England. Uh, the first of these would be a man by the name of John Eliot, who translated the Bible into the Algonquian language, which was actually the first Bible printed in America. Um, he, pretty amazing too, I mean, he not only translated the Bible into their language, he had to develop a system of grammar for their language because their language wasn't even written. And he had to teach people not only, he had, not only had to learn their language, establish what the grammar was, he had to teach the people how to read. And he did all these things. Uh, and his emphasis, obviously the, the Puritan and the Protestant emphasis on the translation of scripture is key to the modern missionary movement. Um, but that, he, uh, Eliot was pretty amazing in his uh, endurance in, in, in translating the scriptures for that family, for those groups. Uh, the second, second people we will talk about are, or just barely touch on, are David and John Brainerd. Uh, we talked about David Brainerd a little bit when we talked about Edwards. Um, but David Brainerd, he was only a missionary for five years. But his labors and trials were recorded by Jonathan Edwards in his posthumous biography of the young believer. And his brother, John, actually completed uh, the missionary work that David began after David died. And David Brainerd's journal has been influential to almost every single gifted missionary in the history of the church. It's pretty amazing, the influence it's had. And his biography doesn't outline some great missionary strategy, like saying, okay, this is what you do when you get to a place that doesn't know what the gospel is. There's no strategy involved. Instead, it's, it's just a biography of a life and his journals document how he was wholly committed to God and that he had a great concern for the gospel being taken to the Native Americans. Um, the third group is the Mayhew family, who actually settled in Martha's Vineyard. Don't blame them for that. Um, and they uh, actually ministered to the Native Americans there for five consecutive Mayhew generations. So they were uh, completely captivated by the, the gospel and the need to minister to the people there. So those are the English, yes, Mayhew, M-A-Y-H-E-W. All right, so of course two weeks ago we talked about the Moravians. So number six on yours is the Moravians. This is another Protestant forerunner to the modern missionary movement um, and how they are the major pioneering group of missions in the 17th century. And by the end of the 18th century, nearly half of all the missionaries serving overseas were Moravians. You remember we talked about, I think in 1732 it was, the Moravians came together at um, <clears throat> Count Zinzendorf's estate, and there was like 300 of them, yet they had sent more than half of the Protestant missionaries by the end of the 18th by the end of the 18th century. <clears throat> the Moravians went to places like Africa. Giving you guys a lot of blanks here, so y'all got to work. Uh, Asia, Greenland, Lapland, the Arctic, the Caribbean, and to America. 1733, pretty early on in their existence, or their reemergence, uh, a man by the name of Christian David went to Greenland. 1735, the first Moravian missionaries went to Georgia. And it was at, in Georgia where the Wesleys were primarily influenced by the Moravians. And then 1808 marked the death of a man by the name of David Zeisberger, who was a missionary to the Native American Indians, or the Native Americans, for 63 years. So a faithful endurance of him, of, of Christ. All right, so now these are, those are the forerunners to the modern missionary movement. So next I want to talk about several reasons why this was a, an appropriate time for the modern missionary movement to begin. And then after that we'll talk specifically about the father of modern missions, William Carey. Um, number one, um, several reasons exist for why the modern missionary movement began at the end of the 18th century. Number one, 
there was an interest in foreign cultures. Especially in England, because of the great expeditions of Captain Cook. <laughs> not a pirate, not a pirate. If you, see this is where PowerPoint would be great if I could actually do it. Uh, but the, uh, just imagine with me here, this is the globe. <laughs> and uh, Cook, here's England, right? And here's America, and here's the whatever, the Far East. Cook, he takes these long travels uh, this way, I believe, all the way to lands like Australia, um, the Philippines, huge journeys, very long. He has like three journeys. And he writes back, and he has these incredible documentation Incredible documentation of what he experiences and his experience with the natives, and that in that was uh, enthralling to the English people. So they were amazed by the journeys. Captain Cook was a cult hero <laughs> in the 1800s, um, and he wrote these great journals. And he, it, Captain Cook, was instrumental in the development of science and uh, navigation, um, and he was actually killed on his lap, obviously, his last journey. <laughs> By a, uh, I think, I think in Hawaii, uh, by a uh, group of natives there in Hawaii, and there's actually a memorial to Captain Cook in Hawaii. It's like this obelisk, and it has his statue on it. And I was reading that that small parcel of land where that sits is actually English territory, because there was such respect in the in the history of the world to Captain Cook and what he did. Uh, but his endeavors through the Pacific and Australia, and he circumnavigated uh, the entire island of New Zealand, um, stirred up in especially the evangelical community a desire to see missions. Um, and we'll talk about those specific, Captain Cook's journeys and how that impacted uh, William Carey in a second. Secondly, so we had the interest in foreign cultures. Secondly, there was British colonial expansion So with the advent of the British Empire and its amazing navy, the world was becoming known to the English. And they had colonies in the Americas, India, the Philippines, Australia, and Africa. Unlike the Catholic missionary efforts of the previous century, the English missionaries didn't always, though, they weren't, there weren't English missionaries going with these colonials in every instance. Uh, there was a concern that the gospel preaching would offend the natives and the locals would be upset, and that would impact trade. So there's an economic concern about what the gospel would do. So there was actually some tension between Christianity and the economics of the uh, British Imperial Empire. Uh, British Empire. Um, thirdly, uh, evangel evangelical success of the 19th century, or the 18th century. Most importantly, towards the uh, modern missionary movement was the trend towards, towards evangelicalism of the 18th century, primarily the preaching of the Wesleys and the fact that this faith was going to be a personal faith, uh, the idea that the gospel is for all of life and that the, the message that Wesley and Whitfield and Charles Wesley were preaching was not just for the English but for all of the world. So there's evangelical success is a reason why the modern missionary movement began. Fourth, and this is kind of a reason and one of the causes, I guess, of it being so successful, was the establishment of missionary societies. Prior to, uh, at, at actually in 1698, there actually was the several, a couple societies that started being in 1698 and 1701, two societies were founded by the Anglican Church. These weren't directly uh, missions organizations, but it was the idea that societies and individuals would come together in order to support certain causes. So these do not go in your blanks right here. These are background to the, even the, current, the most recent societies. But in 1698, uh, the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge was founded, and its primary focus was on producing Christian literature. And in 1701, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts was established, and it was mainly concerned about the Christian life in British colonies. Not necessarily, not necessarily ministry and missions to the natives, but to how 
Christian life among the uh, colonists was uh, to, be, to be made. So those are kind of like early ideas of what these societies were. However, there was in the late 1700s and early 1800s the establishment of missionary-specific societies. The first in 1792, which I did not give you enough room on this one, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll give you its shortened name. Uh, and this was done by William Carey in 1792. It's now referred to as the Baptist Missionary Society. So why don't you just put that in your notes? Because we don't have room for the particular Baptist Society for propagating the gospel amongst the heathen, which is the name of the... So William Carey, it's called the Particular Baptist Society. In England at the time, there's two groups of Baptists. There's the Particular Baptists and the General Baptists. Particular Baptists hold to more of a Reformed view of salvation, and the General Baptists hold to a more um, Arminian view of salvation. Two differences there. Uh, 1795, the establishment of the London Missionary Society, and it was founded by several denominations. It was the it involved the Methodists, the Congregationalists, and the Presbyterians. So we saw in that effort uh, denominations coming together for the greater good of missions. Uh, in 1799, it was the Church Missionary Society, which drew from the evangelical wing of the Anglican Church. And in the 19th century, they sent out the great missionary Henry Martin to Persia and India. If you've all written, turn your page over. 1804 was the British and Foreign Bible Society. And the first American one was the American Board of Commissioners. That's longer than I thought. For foreign missions. Was the result was resulted from the Second Great Awakening in New England, which we won't talk about today. But it wasn't limited to England. There was also American and other groups in other countries as well. So these societies were not just made on denominational lines, but saw the coming together of many groups of believers. And that was important because on the mission field, the controversies, the theological controversies of Europe seemed minor in comparison to the fact that they were preaching to people that never even heard what, who Jesus was and what the gospel was. Um, so these denominations came together um, and had agreement on basic core principles. Um, these societies were voluntary. Churches could be members of them, or individuals could be members as well. The societies were supported widespread by the public. That's because the public had a great interest in the missionary effort um, and the uh, documentation that was coming from the travels of Cook and other explorers uh, ignited that interest in the people. Um, and these, they were wide, widely supported by the public and not by the state. Um, so these, it wasn't, they weren't uh, supported by the national churches or anything like that. It was by people, individuals, or churches, um, which is different than the Roman Catholics and even the Dutch Reformed Church we talked about earlier. And for the most part, the financial support was given by the general public instead of the state. See, I'm repeating myself. The public was ready to give because they were completely enamored by the work going on in the foreign lands. So these missionaries would go. It's amazing they could do this without slideshows and DVDs and stuff like that and tell you how great things are going in there. But there, people were enthralled by the stories and the, uh, the cultures that people were talking about as they came back um, from the mission field. So all this to say... The first primary missionary that has the most influence and God used to propel missions forward in the 19th century was a man by the name of William Carey, who lived from 1761 to 1834. He grew up in an Anglican home, but as he grew older and took on an apprentice and eventually became a, a full-time shoemaker or cobbler, um, he became a Baptist. He is known as the father of of modern missions. He's a genius. He's very smart. Um, he was gifted in languages. Um, he was completely interested in the sciences. As he worked 
daily on shoes. He had a map of the world at his desk, and all he thought about was how he was going to minister the gospel to the people in, the, in these uh, places where Cook had been. Um, he, was, he would have been heavily influenced by the evangelical revival of the Wesleys in Whitfield in the 18th century. So he, his, he explains his zeal for missionary service in his work in 1792. Let's see if I can get this. I didn't even want to type out the whole name of this book, but uh, so I had to copy and paste it here. And it is called An Inquiry. Now, let's, I have this for you guys. Why don't you just call it An Inquiry. Okay, this is the short name. An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians. So y'all just put Inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. It's the name of his book. An inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. It doesn't stop there, though. And there's a subtitle. In which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicability of further undertakings are considered. So he uses this term an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means, okay? Well, means are people. God is going to use people to preach the gospel, and that was what his heart motive was, that God was going to use people. It was pretty controversial, especially in the particular Baptist organization. Um, some would say, some made the argument that, Carrie, why do you need to do that? If God wants to save the heathen, he will. And Carrie's like, but he's called us to do that. He's called us to be the ones that share the gospel with the heathen. Um, so he writes this book and hopes to gather a whole lot of support for missionaries to go to India. Yes? Yes. Right. Right. And he might not need to, but he's chosen to. Um, so that's, I think that's a good point. And so that, that, that was there in the, in the particular Baptist movement. But Kerry was wholeheartedly reformed in his theology and believed that he was a servant of God. Um, so he writes this work thinking he's going to get a whole lot of support and he's going to get a bunch of people coming forth to go to missions in India. Not a whole lot of people come forth to go to India. So he goes, well, I guess I better go. So he goes to India, he packs up his family in, in, in late 1792 and arrives in India. And he doesn't return home. He stays there until he dies in 1834. Um, and what's interesting is there's this idea, and this, this one church history says that in William Carey, there's a cross-cultural outreach with the single-minded missionary purpose. They're not trying to colonize. He's not trying to colonize the people. He's not trying to delve into their lives so he can tap into whatever resources they might have in their culture. His single-minded purpose, potentially unlike the other uh, state-sponsored groups of the previous century, was to preach the gospel to those people. So, in 1794, though, things are not going well. He actually doesn't even have the sponsorship of the British East India Company, who's doing a lot of the colonial efforts in India at the time. Um, they feared that his preaching would uh, uh, inhibit their ability to trade. So he actually moves to a Dutch city called Sarampore, um, which I don't know if I have it on yours. Oh, we'll get to it. All right, anyway. So he's joined in seven, when he goes, quickly he's joined by two other Englishmen, one by the name of William Ward, who was a printer, which is important, and the second was a man by the name of Joshua Marshman, <clears throat> who was a teacher. So in 1794, Carey writes in his journal as he's not having much success um, at all. He says, when I first left England, my hope of the conversion of the heathen was very strong. But among so many obstacles, it would utterly die away unless upheld by God, having nothing to cherish it. So Carey came to, the, to rely increasingly on the promise of the Bible, and he says this, Yet this is our encouragement. The power of God is sufficient to accomplish everything which he has promised. And his promises are exceedingly great and precious respecting the conversion of the heathens. So he's been there almost two years with no success. 
he does not see a convert for another five years after that. So it took seven years um, for these men to see souls converted. Amazing faith in the Lord that they endured. Um, on number 10, I didn't give you this. Those three men became known as the Sarampore. That's S-E-R-A-M-P-O-R-E trio. That was the city they were in. All right, so one of the first people to be converted was a man by the name of, perfect Hindu name, Krishna. Krishna Pal, P-A-L. He was baptized in, on December 22nd, 1800. <clears throat> and this is what uh, William Ward writes about that. He says, Brother Carey has waited till hope of his own success had almost expired, and after all, God has done it with perfect ease. Thus the door of faith is open to the Gentiles. Who shall shut it? So at first, few followed the example of Krishna Paul and the others. But by 1821, the missionaries had baptized a total of 1,407 converts and over half of them were Indian nationals. Some of them were British or Dutch people as well. And Carey wrote, and this is important because as Krishna Paul becomes saved, he becomes an evangelist. Um, and that was one of the there's one of the things that that Carey wanted to involve in the uh, locals there was that he wanted to preach the gospel to them so they might be saved, and then train the locals or the natives to become the preachers to their people. Um, and that was one of his strategies. Um, and this is what he says about that in a letter to someone in England. He says, India will never be turned from her idolatry to serve the true and living God unless the grace of God rests abundantly on converted Indians to qualify them for mission work. And unless by those who care for India, these be trained for and sent into the work. In my judgment, it is on native evangelists that the weight of the great work must ultimately rest. So kind of. Shannon's doing in Uganda and training the local Ugandans. Um, <clears throat> so by Carey's death, I think, did I give you that date? 1834, there were about 45 native missionaries in to the Indian people. <clears throat> and he and his cohorts had established 19 missionary stations. <clears throat> Let's see. Um, Carey was uniquely gifted in the languages. And by the time he had died, he had translated all or part of the Bible into 35 different languages. 35. It's amazing. Um, one thing he also was, imp it was important for, for Carey is he wanted to change some of the traditional society things going on in India. There's a just an awful tradition of when a man died in India. And he was he would die, and they would put his body like on this. Like they call it a funeral pyre, P-Y-R-E, or pyre, and it was it's, it's like a monument. They would set a flame. They would burn the living widow with the husband, as, so they could go off in eternity together. And Carrie was heartbroken by that, and actually in many many villages he help to end um, that tradition. Um, but Carey's faith um, <clears throat> was inspirational to the coming century, which is referred to as the great century for missions. Many societies were founded just because of his stories and the work that he did that was so successful. And countless individuals were encouraged to take up the mantle of worldwide missionary work as well. And then in 1813, ironically, the British East Indian Company's contract was renewed and Parliament required that missionaries be given free access to areas under the company's control. Um, now, Carey didn't, didn't get 20,000 followers, probably, during his life, but he set the standard for India as it, um, more missionaries came in in the 19th century. Um, I think there's, I already alluded to one, or you can add this, actually I didn't put this on there. Well, it's on there. There's several traits to Carey's missionary work I think that are important for us to talk about. Number one, he preached the gospel. I think that's obvious. Uh, number two, the Bible translated. So he wanted to get the word of God into the language of the people so they could read it themselves. 
very Protestant ideal. He wanted to see the people educated. Um, he took along with him uh, Joshua Marshman, who was a teacher, and he built up education in India so people could read and they could study. Primarily, they could read and study the scriptures. And number four, and the most important, probably the most enduring, was converts, uh, what did I write here? Mobilize. You try to get those in parallel, you know, it's kind of difficult. But he wanted to mobilize the converts of India to spread the gospel to their fellow countrymen, um, which I think is it was very important that it wasn't just the European white man coming in telling people how to live, but these people had real experience about what the gospel really meant in their lives. Um, so that is William Carey, the father of modern missions, and he his influence kind of propels the next great century of missions where there's dozens upon dozens of missionaries we could talk about going forward, which we will um, for a couple of weeks probably the next go around. So that's all I have. I'm done. Anybody have any questions? Yes. That's a good question. I don't know. There's there's a thought that pretty immediately the uh, Indian church, Christianity played a huge role in Indian independence um, from England in like the earlier 1900s. Um, but as far as today, that's a good question. I, don't, I haven't looked at that. I don't know. Anybody have any ideas? About? Good question. I'll research. Okay. Well, let's pray. Gentlemen, Father, Lord, we come before you, Lord, and we praise you because you are worthy of all of our praise. Lord, as we are gathered together today, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be mindful and worshipful for who you are. Lord, as we, um, as we talk to each other, Lord, and as we um, consider the things of, of, of missions, Lord, and of the word preached by Pastor Dan today, Lord, I pray that we would uh, leave here with hearts changed. Lord, I pray that we would be an encouragement to one, each other, one, one another. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the great work that Jesus did on our behalf. May we live to his glory today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.